God, we acknowledge that uh, you are you are holy, and that we are not. We acknowledge that God, we we sort of recognize that truth, but that truth uh, needs to be uh, pressed into our minds and hearts in a deeper way. That we would understand that you are not like us. How that's a good thing, how that's a humbling thing, and how that's a truth that ought to lead us to, to worship and awe and reverence and, and love and joy towards you. God, would you, would you please come by your spirit and, and uh, give us understanding as we turn to your word? Would you come by your spirit and, and show us Christ as, you, as we turn to your word? And God, would you uh, come by your spirit and give us a true and right view of you and ourselves in light of who you are? God, give us a glimpse of your glory as we open up your word and look to see who you are and how you call us to worship and respond. Pray you would do this for your glory. We pray you would do this for our good. And we trust that you will hear our prayer and you will answer. In Christ's name, amen. Starting a new series on uh, this idea of spiritual renewal, taking three weeks to look at spiritual renewal. And when, I, when, when you think of spiritual renewal, I want you to uh, also think of this other concept uh, of revival. Spiritual renewal and revival. Think of them as terms that you can that you can uh, inter uh, inter exchange, meaning the same things. And and when you think revival, that may conjure up certain images based on your church background. Um, but I want you to think of think of this when you think of revival. Don't think of simply uh, extraordinary things or, or miracles or, or things of that nature, but, but also think this when you think revival. Think of an extraordinary experience of God by His Spirit poured out through ordinary means. When you look at and you study the course of revival or renewal, really what you see is that it's God showing up in a profound way through the ordinary things that his people have always been doing. And so it's the moments when you, you come to church and you worship and you gather like you do over and over and over countless times. And you get a sense of God in a way that you just haven't before. That's God's spirit poured out in an extraordinary way through an ordinary means. It's a moment where you maybe read your Bible, and sometimes it's exciting, sometimes it's dry, but this one time, it just feels like God's presence and his truth and his character just leaps off the page and confronts you in the face, and you're just melted. That's renewal and revival. That's God's spirit poured out in an extraordinary way through an ordinary means. You could put it like this, this idea of renewal and revival that happens in a person when the truth of God is not just known intellectually, but it becomes something that's actually experienced. In large part, it's tied to these two doctrines, the doctrine of God's grace and the doctrine of our sinfulness. Renewal and revival always happens when those two truths are not just known intellectually, but become experienced on a heart level. Great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it like this. 
describes it's this knowledge, uh, this, this experience of revival is something moving from head knowledge to experiential knowledge. And he gives this analogy of a father and a son walking. And, the, and they're walking hand in hand. And the son knows that his father loves him. And the son, the son knows that in their mind. But he describes renewal and revival as this moment when the son, or when the father picks up the son, swings him close to him, hugs him, kisses him, and embraces him. And it's just this experiential knowledge of what the son has already always known, that my father loves me. That's spiritual renewal. That's personal revival. And that can happen in a person, and that can happen in the midst of a congregation. And so I want us to to think through this and to look at this idea of spiritual renewal because our default posture is not experiencing in a deep way the gospel. Our default posture is kind of this performance-based thing where we know in our minds God accepts us through the grace of Jesus, but Deep down on a heart level, Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon, when our kids are going crazy, when work is really hard, when our roommates are bothering us, what, what do we relate to God on? The truth of Jesus? No, we relate to him mostly on, well, how have I been doing today? That's the default mode of our hearts, is a performance-based mentality. And so we need this renewal, this spiritual renewal, because we are so prone to live as if God accepts us based on our spiritual devotion, the sincerity of our prayers, our service, our living, how well we're doing, not based on the work of Jesus. If you've ever felt spiritually dry, or maybe you feel spiritually dry right now, you need this type of spiritual renewal. If you have this desire in your hearts, you want a deeper love of Jesus, you want a deeper experience of His grace, you want a deeper knowledge of God, then the answer for you is this spiritual renewal. Richard Loveless, uh, uh, who spent his life studying uh, revival and renewal, he, 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 uh, he studied them all over different cultures, continents, and, and places, and realized that there's two preconditions for this type of spiritual renewal in a person and within a church congregation or community. These are the two preconditions. Think of them as prerequisites. Before you can get into uh, this class, you have to get these two things. Before you can have spiritual renewal, you have to have these two things happen to you. And they have to happen to you over and over and over and over and over again. The two things. An experience and understanding of God's holiness and an experience and understanding of our sinfulness. He says anywhere you look and see a revival in the course of human history, you will find those two things right there at the center. God's holiness or sinfulness. The key to spiritual renewal is a right view of God and a right view of self. Over and over and over again. So let's look at Isaiah 6, because there's probably no other passage that gives us such a clear view of God and self, which are the keys to spiritual renewal. Isaiah 6, read with me. You can turn your Bible on and, 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 and scroll along, or it'll be up here on the screen. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah is a major prophet of God. There are minor prophets, there are major prophets. Isaiah is a major prophet of God, and you can tell by just looking at how long his record of prophecy is. Much longer than, say, Obadiah, who's got like one page. Isaiah is a major prophet of God. King Uzziah has has died. He came into power at age 16. And when you look at the kings of Israel, God's people, some of them were great, some of them were horrible, and some were a little of column A and a little of column B. And that's who Uzziah was. Little column A, little column B. Started strong, ended poorly. Ended in pride against God. And, And he dies. He started about 16, reigned for about 50 years. So this is a big deal. He's died. And Isaiah is probably, presumably, coming to the temple, the place of God's presence among his people. He's coming to the temple probably to seek the Lord and say, well, our king has died. What happens next? Where do we go to now? And as he comes to seek the Lord, he gets a renewed vision of the true king. As the earthly king has died, he comes to seek the Lord and he's confronted with the king, the Lord of hosts, the God of the universe. And what happens is he becomes melted with the truth of who God is and the truth of who he is in light of the revelation of God. Isaiah gets refreshed in his vision of God. And here's the thing. The Christian, the believer, needs a constant refresh on their vision of God because we have amnesia when it comes to who God is, his character, his attributes, his goodness. My fear for myself, my fear for you is that we might ride the wave of our relationship with Jesus that was deep years ago and just coast along into the future. We need to be renewed in the vision of who God is, who we are continually. So let me ask you this. Have you seen God like Isaiah has seen God? Have you been melted by the holiness and the glory of God? Have you caught a glimpse of it and has it completely wrecked you and changed you? I love this verse one. This is so simple. Verse one. The year King Uzziah died, Isaiah says this, I saw the Lord. That's all it takes. Is a glimpse of God. That's all it takes. One little glimpse. If you look at how people encounter God through the scriptures, Moses, when he asked to see God's glory in Exodus, God doesn't show him his his glory um, fully unleashed, fully uncovered. He just shows him a little snippet. And Moses' face becomes radiant and he comes down from from the mountain and he goes among the people. And the people will not look at Moses because his face is reflecting the glory of God and they're completely awestruck. And so Moses has to wear a veil to interact with the people because they're like, this is too much of God's glory. It's overwhelming. All Isaiah does is he sees the Lord. He gets this vision of the heavenly reality. 
and he's totally wrecked and changed. A couple of things that he sees, a right view of God. That's what Isaiah encounters. He's renewed in a right view of God. And interesting, I think God is this, but a right view, and he sees this transcendence. Look at uh, verse 1, the throne. So the Lord uh, seated in the throne, high and exalted throne. Who sits on thrones? Rulers, right? Kings, rulers, important people. Maybe you have a throne at your house, right? You want to feel important. You're like, oh, I need to feel important at the end of the day about this throne, right? You're trying to feel important. Kings, rulers, important, prominent, majestic, glorious people sit in thrones. God's throne, this represents God's uh, authority and transcendence. He's exalted. He rules over the universe. He is the authority over the cosmos. Virginia Stem Owens says this, God's activity is what it is. There is nothing else. Without it, there would be no being, including human beings, presuming to judge the creator of everything that is. She's just saying this, God is the authority transcendent above us and above all things. We see his transcendence in this text by his throne. We also see this with the seraphim, these angelic beings, right? And if you, if you uh, look to um, Exodus when they're constructing the tabernacle, there's little symbols of kind of angelic beings on some of the artwork that they that they create meant to reflect the reality of angels in heaven, just glorious beings that tremble and worship God because he's breathtaking. And notice what they do. They don't just worship him in a generic way. They worship him in a specific way, and they cry out what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, it means the, the Lord of the angels, the Lord of the armies, the Lord of the heavens. They say, holy, holy, holy. And this is the biggest thing. The keys to spiritual renewal is a right view of God, a right view of self continually. Here's the first thing that we have to see about God. In a right view of God, you are confronted with God's holiness. A right view of God means you see God's holiness. Let me ask you this. What comes to mind when you think of God as holy? What images pop into your head? Maybe you get an image of God restricting people from fun things. Maybe you get an image of God holding us to a strict to-do and do-not list. Maybe you have an image of a God that says, I want nothing to do with you humans. I'm pure. You're not. There are many characters to the holiness of God, yet a true grasp of the holiness of God is essential to a right view of God, which is essential to spiritual renewal in you and in me. Exodus 15, 11 says this, Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Answer is no one. Holiness, if you look at the descriptions of God in the Bible, holiness is not just one attribute, but it's essential to the very character and fabric of who God is. If we were to dig and try to strike at the center, the essence of God, we would find at his core, holiness. One, uh, one great writer puts it like this. He says, uh, holiness is to be regarded not as a distinct attribute, but as the result of all of God's moral perfection together. Thomas Watson, old Puritan, says this. Holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. It is the name by which he is known. R.C. Sproul, another uh, old person, um, wrote a great book called The Holiness of God. I encourage you, if you want to think more about this, to read that book. You can buy it on uh, Amazon for one cent. Um, plus three ninety nine shipping, right? So you can get it. It's very easy. It's a great book to read and a great way if you want to become introduced or refreshed in the knowledge of God. You should. This is a book to consider reading. But in that book, he has a great quote about Isaiah six, and he describes that there's no other place in the Bible where God is described as something three times. You never see God described as mercy, 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 justice, 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 love, 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 power, power, power. Grace, grace, grace. But here in Isaiah, you see him described as holy, 
holy, holy. This is uh, Hebrews' way of saying and emphasizing something that is essential. We might underline it, we might bold it, we might put it in all caps, size 64 font, right? We might do a bunch of things. This is the Hebrew way to say, you have to understand this is his essence. Holy, holy, holy. And yet if we're going to be honest, we don't consider the holiness of God all that much. It's not something probably that's on our radar in the way that Isaiah describes it. And here's the catch about that. If we downplay God's holiness, which is essential to his character, we strip away the very essence of God from our understanding of God. And then it's no wonder why we're never renewed spiritually. It's no wonder why we're never in awe of him. It's no wonder that we can lack vigor, joy, and passion in our faith because we may be missing part of the essence of who God is. Part of the essence that renews us in our understanding and passion of him. We may have the core cut out on our vision of God. His holiness. Think of holiness this way. His holiness means two things. It means he's set apart. He's, he's other than us and he is morally pure in all of his ways. He's just transcendent. He's above us. His thoughts are higher than us. His ways are higher than us. He is not like us in every way in which we are flawed. He is not like us to infinite perfection. His holiness. That's what it means to be holy. When's the last time you were shaken to the core by the holiness of God? If you read stories of revival, there's some that have not happened too far from here in Northampton with Jonathan Edwards would be one of them. Um, There's many that have happened, but you read stories about that. You find stories of people just going to a prayer meeting, getting a sense of the the glory of God, or someone reading just one verse in the Bible, and people just falling to the floor in awe. They just get a whiff of God's holiness, a whiff of his transcendence, a whiff of he is so much greater than I am. I am to be humbled. Chances are, if you're a Christian, you've had a moment like that, but my question to you, my question to myself is, are we being renewed in our awe of God, in our understanding of who God is. And notice what happens to Isaiah. He gets a right view of God, and then he begins to get a right view of himself. And a right view of God, of God's holiness gives us a right view of self because it's like being in a dark room and getting a glimpse of God's holiness is like the lights being turned on. And as the lights turned on, you're able to see your hands, you're able to see the condition that you're in, you're able to see the things around you And you see yourself in light of his light in a whole new way. That's why a right view of God is so essential to a right view of self. The the average person, and dare I say maybe even sometimes the average person in church, views God as like a Morgan Freeman character. Right? With the Morgan Freeman voice. You guys know what I'm talking about? Bruce Almighty, different things like that. We, We view and relate to God as if he's just in the sky, a Morgan Freeman voice, simply shouting instructions for us to do and to not do. And he's there to listen to us, kind of like a hotline when things get really, really bad. Right? But there's this, there's very little sense of awe and transcendence about him at times. But I want you to consider Isaiah. Isaiah catches a glimpse of God. And then he's blown away. Now, did Isaiah know God before this moment? Did Isaiah have an understanding of God's character before this moment? Did Isaiah have an intimacy with God before this moment? 
Did Isaiah understand God is holy and I'm not before this moment? Absolutely. Of course. But look how he's renewed. He says this, Woe is me, for I'm lost. You have to understand it like this, and maybe this will help put this in your mind. When we get a right glimpse of God, it's like the foundations of our self and our self-view are shaken. It's like we experience an internal earthquake. Right? Look, you look, at, look at the text, the foundations of the threshold shook. Right? There's this just shaking up of things. When we get a right view of God, it's like there's an earthquake within us that breaks apart all of our kind of false understanding of ourselves that inflates us in a way that we're really not, and we get a true vision of ourselves in light of God. And this is what happens to Isaiah. He knew God before, but a deeper vision of God means a deeper understanding of self. And so Isaiah is renewed in his understanding. This is why we want this to happen continually. Notice Isaiah's response is not a great sermon. His response is to seeing God is not, how can I love God more? His response is a self-damning curse. He actually curses himself. He says, woe is me. If you go back to Isaiah 5, there are multiple woes pronounced over God's people for their sin. If you flip to Matthew 23, what does Jesus pronounce in his harshest word to religious teachers? What does he say to them? Woe. Not woe as in wow, but woe, W-O-E, woe. This is the opposite of a blessing. This is a curse. So Isaiah sees a vision of God, and then what does he do? The prophet of God proclaims a curse upon himself. He sees God, and he essentially says this, I'm doomed. There's no hope for me. I ought to be condemned. Woe is me. This is strong language. He puts a curse of God. He invokes God's judgment upon himself. Once Isaiah got a right view of self, he proclaimed God's judgment upon himself. This is strange, isn't it? Has this ever happened to you? Where you caught a glimpse of God as completely other than you and you realized, I'm not worthy. You caught a glimpse of God and said, Your ways are perfect. Mine are not. You're blessed. I ought to be cursed. This is not not normal fare, right? This is not just what we naturally normally do. It has to be a vision of God that gives us a sense of this, a vision from his word. Seems extreme, doesn't it? But this is essential to understanding God. And here's what will help us here. You are a creature of comparison. I am too. But you think about this in your mind. How many times over the course of your week do you compare either others to another or yourself to another? Just think of how much we compare. Right? You might compare your dress to their dress, right? If you have like a meeting and like nobody told you with like as a smart casual, like super casual, like mild casual, where all these casuals, you're like, what does this even mean? And, and you show up and you're like, oh, great, I'm wearing a T-shirt and everyone's in button-ups, right? So you just play in this compare the whole meeting, like, do I really belong here? You might compare your dress, you might compare your appearance, you might compare how, how good of a friend I am to them, but they're not that good of a friend to me. You might compare, well, how are they as a parent versus how I am as a parent, or how are their styles of parenting working versus mine? You might compare how I'm failing at this and how they're succeeding at this. You might compare, well, they have this lifestyle and I don't, right? We just compare a lot. Would you guys agree with that? We compare a lot. 
right? Our life is in large part a festival of horizontal comparisons. And if you were to use this scale of horizontal comparisons, Isaiah should be the last person to say, woe is me. Right? This, this is a prophet of God who hears from God and then declares it to God's people. He should be the last person to say, woe is me. Isaiah was a man of integrity. His country saw him as the most righteous man in their midst. And yet he sees God, and then he says, woe is me. And here's what happens. His comparison was elevated from being horizontal to now being vertical. He went from comparing himself to others to now getting a glimpse of God and saying, oh, no, I need to lift my eyes to who God is and see myself in light of that. And once that happened, he became humbled. Once that happened, he had a deeper sense of his unworthiness because he had a greater sense of God's perfections. And he says this, he says, I am undone. This means you're like coming apart at the seams. This happens to your clothes all the time, right? You pull the thread and it just unravels. I'm undone. I'm unraveled on the inside. And here's, uh, I think, what he's kind of getting at. It's this idea of his sense of self-goodness was beginning to unravel. The, self of sense, uh, the sense of self-goodness that we get from comparing to other people, when we get a glimpse of the holiness of God, that begins to unravel. We become humbled and we realize the comparison that matters most is not how I compare to these folks, but how I stand in light of who God is, how I'm compared not horizontally, but vertically. Who I am in light of God's true character. And he saw himself in that light, and then he was broken. When is the last time that your view of self and your horizontal goodness was shaken to the core and you saw that despite all your accomplishments, despite your degrees, despite your service to the church, despite your moral goodness, despite your reputation, that you are a broken human being before a holy God? When's the last time that truth sunk in and shook you to the core. R.C. Sproul, talking about God's holiness, says, uh, says this. He says, The clearest sensation that a human being has when they experience the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. There's something about God's holiness that when we come in the presence of it, we become humbled. This is why arrogant Christians make no sense. You have to wonder, what are you spending any time with this God? Because we become humbled as we see his holiness and his perfection. Right? And this, is, this is why, um, you know, I'm going to plug this. This is why we want to do... Uh, Groups are gospel communities where you can have people who help point you to God so you can be humbled. Who People who help you see like Isaiah is seeing himself, the human condition. And notice that Isaiah does this. He sees his condition, but then he's also concerned for who? The people. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's concerned for himself and for others. And that's the nature and, and relationships we want to cultivate in our, in our gospel communities. But, but God says this, when you begin to see yourself Rightly, in that light, we're brought to the brink of despair. We're humbled. We're brought to despair and humility 
not to leave us there, but because his despair and humility, that's the address where grace meets you. If you're never brought to the corner of despair and humility, the grace of God will never meet you. It will never encounter you. You'll never be renewed in your passion for Jesus if you're never humbled by God's holiness. It will never happen. Look at what happens to Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. So he gets broken over who he is in light of who God is, and then this is what happens. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So Isaiah gets a foundation-shaking experience of God's holiness that breaks him apart, that gives him a right view of self, and it's within that gap the gap between God's holiness and Isaiah's understanding of himself, that grace comes in. See, if you have a a view of God's holiness that's here and a view of your goodness that's here, you have only a tiny little bit of room for grace to come in. Your experience of grace will be this big. But if you begin to grow in your understanding, if you're spiritually renewed in your understanding of who God is and your understanding of self begins to be humbled, do you see how big your experience of Jesus' grace will become? You just have a deeper sense like, wow, I knew I needed God's mercy, but man, I really understand who I am. See, this is the thing. God doesn't show us his holiness to make us grovel in the dirt. He shows us his holiness so that we can see ourselves and so that we have a larger experience of all of his grace for us. He doesn't want you to have a little tiny experience of his grace. He wants you to have a massive experience of his grace. And that only comes by having a bigger view of his holiness and a deeper view of our brokenness. And the cross becomes bigger in your mind and your heart. This is why Jesus teaches in Luke, the one who is forgiven little loves little. The one who is forgiven much loves much. It's this whole concept. Is that if you really understand who you are in light of who God is, Man, his grace will be bigger to you. But if you have a very superficial understanding of who God is and who you are, his grace will mean something to you. It doesn't mean you're, you, you don't have a relationship with God and, and you're not justified and all those things. It just means your experience of that will be smaller. And over time, God will grow that. But we want to be renewed in that. So look at this. Look at this. Immediately upon Isaiah's confession, woe is me, what happens immediately? God makes him grovel. God makes him get better. God makes him prophesy more. No, immediately a seraphim flies to him with a burning coal in tongues off the altar and atones for his sins immediately. Immediately grace is brought to him, delivered to his front door, right there. Immediate. Isn't that awesome? Grace is brought to him the instant he confesses. Man, God is kind to us. There's not a probation period. It's not like trying to become a firefighter. Where it's like, well, you're going to have to work for a year and we're going to see if we really like you or not. No, boom, grace brought to him. But this is a painful mercy. Think of this image, a burning coal on your lips. Right, how many of you want to sign up for that? Listen, man, I was making frozen french fries in a hurry. Just touch the um, tray, the tray for a moment with my arm. And then the of my flesh. It was like this. And I've got this little, this nice little, uh, I could just call it a tattoo now. Um, got this nice little thing here. Right? It's just a moment of touch. 
Isaiah, this image of a burning coal put upon his lips, this is a painful mercy. But it's through this pain that forgiveness of sins is made. He's welcomed into the presence of God. He goes from being cursed woe to being forgiven, blessed, from guilty to accepted. Because from the altar of sacrifice comes a burning coal. But what, is this, what does this image, this imagery mean? Well, here, here's, here's, what, uh, here's what Isaiah is getting at. It's, notice it's God who does it, right? Not us. Isaiah doesn't get better. God does it. God initiates. God orchestrates this. And here's the imagery. Consider the altar. What happens upon the altar in the, in the temple of God when we look at the Old Testament scriptures? Sacrifice. Animal sacrifice upon the altar. A lot of times when you see fire, this image in the scriptures, it's representing God's judgment on sin, his, his pure wrath against sin. And, and so what we have, the imagery that is being shown here, is that God's judgment has fallen upon something on the altar. And that thing that has experienced the judgment is now being transferred to Isaiah. It's coming into contact with him. And through contact with him, the transfer of judgment has happened so that the judgment that occurred is now credited to having taken place for Isaiah. So he has no judgment upon him. There's been a transfer. There's been an exchange from the altar of sacrifice. And why does it touch his lips? Because the instrument of his confession was the path to his forgiveness. He confessed with his lips And it's through his confession that he was forgiven. This gives us a preview of Jesus. That Jesus goes to the altar of the cross. He endures the scorching pain of God's judgment. Our sins upon himself. And as we trust in him by faith, just like the coal touches Isaiah's lips, his atonement makes a transfer to us. Our sins upon him, his atonement to us. God's holiness and grace kiss Isaiah's lips in that burning coal, but God's holiness and grace for us in the truest way, kiss for us upon the cross. His holiness that says, I I must punish sin, and his grace says that I will not put that punishment on you, meets us at the cross of Jesus. See, don't you see a God is trying to restore a right vision of himself and of you, which leads to a renewed vision of Jesus. Think about this way. When you get a right view of God, you start to say this. God is holier than I know. When you get a right view of self, you start to say this. I'm more sinful than I understand, which then leads you to a renewed vision of Jesus' grace. His grace meets me immediately, forgives me, and restores me. If you get a right view of God, a right view of yourself, you will be wide open to deeply experience the grace of Jesus. And this is the essence of spiritual renewal. And this happens through the ordinary things of meeting like this, of talking about the Bible together, of praying on your own, of reading the Bible on your own, and when God's Spirit just reminds us of these three truths in a deeper way through the ordinary means that we experience Him in. So let me ask you this. Is Jesus dull to you lately? If Jesus is dull to you lately, if if you feel spiritually dry, you feel just spiritually tired, or you feel spiritually apathetic, you just feel beat down because you're seeing all the ways in which you fail, God wants to remind you that, yeah, you fail. But his grace meets you there. See, this is is the backwards beauty of Christianity. The more you see you're further from God and the worse that you see you are, the more you rejoice because you realize grace is greater than I thought. Christ is still forgiven me, atoned for me, loves me. This is why the gospel, when we understand it, never becomes old even to the most seasoned Christian. 
Because isn't every single day just an experience of, of your failures? Right? You just go through life. Aren't you just constantly confronted with all the ways in which you fail? With like one or two successes sprinkled on top to just keep you from you know, slapping your head against the door? Isn't that, what, isn't that what life is in a fallen world? But God is saying, hey, the more you realize you're worse than you thought and I'm greater than you think, the more my love floods into your life. The more grace meets you, the bigger the cross becomes and you become spiritually renewed because people who understand God is great and we are not, they have a grand vision of Jesus and they are so rooted in the truth that despite my flaws, Christ has put his righteousness on me, his acceptance is mine. They walk with a confidence and a humility that this world cannot produce. It comes from being renewed in our understanding of God renewed in our view of self, which then gives us a gigantic view of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah goes from here to then, if you read on further, he says, God, send me. Send me to your people. Send me to proclaim your goodness, your grace, because he's been so moved by this great grace that he says, oh, this is too good for me to hold in my house. Let me take this to your people. That's what happens when the gospel hits you like this. Right, so imagine, what if this happens for you? What if this happens for our church? What if this happens uh, on our, in our neighborhood? Man, just think of what God will do through this. Imagine the type of renewal that will spring up in us, in the person next to you, in our, in our congregation, and out into our city, as we all get renewed by the grace of Jesus and then say, God, send me. Let me remind my friend about this. Let me take this to someone who's never heard. God, send me. But this only comes when we get a right view of God, a right view of self, and then we get a large view of Christ. And this is what we want to see happen in us over and over again because we know our default is to only consider our failures, only consider our performance, forget how grand God is, forget how humble we are, and forget how big the cross of Jesus is. But God wants us to be renewed by Christ. Let's step into that.